Young people, thank you for joining us. Take a one and a pass her around. I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the first Psalm, Psalm 1. The first psalm is familiar to most of us. It is a fitting psalm that uh, virtually introduces the whole book of of psalms in its uh, way of wisdom literature introducing us to the way of the righteous and contrasts, in contrast to the way of the wicked. Notice this startling contrast in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So he starts off by by stating the way of the blessed one, what he is not characterized by, And now what he is characterized by, as he butts into the picture in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. This is the life of the righteous, the one that God blesses. And in contrast to him, everything that he stands for, everything that he receives at the hand of God's blessing is not so for the ungodly. That's why he starts off in verse, six, verse 4, all he has to say is, wicked, not so. That's literally the way it's rendered in the Hebrew, not so the wicked. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. If you're wondering what we're doing today, we're, we're not going to go through an exposition of Psalm 1. Uh, that's on the website. If you would like to uh, listen in for some teaching time on that, but I thought what a great way to introduce introductory comments on the Psalter this morning. The, the Psalms is a book that we spend so much time in, I thought that it would uh, be good this morning uh, as I'm still working on uh, what series we're going to go through in adult Sunday school to just give you some, some informational items to equip you as you individually go to the book of Psalms time and time again. Abraham Lincoln, confiding to a friend, said of the Psalms, they are the best. I find something in them for every day of the year. And many of you would share the same testimony about the Psalms. Martin Luther called it the Bible in miniature. If you were a book publisher, 
publishing the Psalms, you could find comment after comment that would make excellent blurbs for the dust jacket. It's the Bible's longest book. It contains more chapters than any other book of the Bible, as well as both the longest and the shortest chapters in the Bible. It is the only book written by many authors. There are more prophecies, allusions, and types of the Messiah in the Psalms than any other Old Testament book. It is more quoted in the New Testament than any other book. It is arguably the most popular book in the Old Testament, if not in the entire Bible. The Psalms is a songbook. We, start, we started start, starting off uh, Sunday schools these days with a hymn or chorus singing together. And as you read through and study through the Psalms, you might find yourself like the sons of Korah, singing group, singing through the Psalms. This is a book of contrast showing the immensity of man's sin against the backdrop of the unparalleled character of God. It spans a thousand years of Israel's rich history from the time of Moses, which is Psalm 90, to the return from the exile in Babylonia, Psalm 126. It's the longest and most oft-quoted, most diverse book of the Old Testament. It provides truth for our meditations, for songs, for prayer. Augustine, the early church father, spent an hour every day for several decades meditating on the Psalms, verse by verse, and he kept a journal of his meditations, which are rich. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, used the noun samos, designated it as a song sung to the accompaniment of a harp. That's why a friend, Dr. Will Varner from the Master's College, uh, wrote a, uh, he, he wrote a devotional uh, book on the Psalms that I recently purchased, which is uh, uh, Awake, O Harp, is the title of it. And uh, it well captures that these were to be sung. In the words of another, they are like the windows and carvings of medieval cathedrals. The Psalms were pictures of biblical faith for a people who had no copies of the Scriptures in their homes and could not have read them, unquote. This title, Psalmos, is a rendering of the Hebrew word mizmor, which was a technical word for a song, a song sung to the accompaniment of musical instrument. It was used as the temple hymn book, expressing the diversity of human emotion. I use the word diversity because uh, it goes from praise to God to fear of enemies and an overriding confidence in God's goodness, majesty, and power. That's why I, I've said time and again that it speaks the language of the soul. It's, it's kind of like a roller coaster. Up one minute and down the next. That's, that's why so many people spend so much time in the book of Psalms. It's a book of worship. 
recording personal response to the person and work of God. The Psalms constituted Israel's ancient God-breathed hymn book. Jesus referred to it as the book of Psalms in uh, Luke 20, verse 42. The Hebrew text appropriately entitled the book of Tehillim, or the book of praises. So, look with me for just a moment at the, the structure of the book. It's, uh, it's, basic, it's basically divided into five parts. Book one, which is Psalms 1 through 41. Book two, Psalms 42 through, 40, uh, through 72. Book three is Psalm 73 through 89. Book four, 90 through 106. And book five is 107 to 150. Each of the uh, first four books ends with a doxology. You, you look at the end of, of Psalm 41, the end of Psalm 72, the end of Psalm 89, and the end of 106, and there's a doxology. You might wonder, well, what about book five? Well, the entire 150th Psalm's a doxology in and of itself, so I guess that ends in a doxology as well. To give you a little note on their collection, they were probably compiled in four stages. The first was the writing of individual poems or psalms. The primary use of the psalms, as I've said, seems to have been for, for temple worship. It's a kind, kind of a prayer book. You might have prayer books on your shelves at home. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with prayer books. I've got several in my own library. When they were written, they were collected for use in regular worship. And then after that first step, step two, the individuals were, individual psalms were gathered into collections. Second uh, Chronicles 29.30 may suggest only two collections at the time of Hezekiah, David, and Asaph. And then third step was a, a smaller, smaller collections were organized into these five books and the final edition was compiled. And then uh, let me give you a word about the, uh, the numbering of, of Psalms. Greek and Roman Catholic Bibles combine Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 as well as Psalm 114 and 115 and separate Psalm 147 into two individual Psalms, 146 and 147. That's why the chapter divisions between the Hebrew and Greek translations vary slightly. Protestant Bibles follow the Hebrew. What about their writers? I'd mentioned that Psalms has many authors. Of the 150 Psalms, all but 34 have some kind of title. You notice that in your, in your Bibles? A superscript? A hundred might indicate their authorship. 
as the Hebrew preposition that is used is a, is a lamed prefix to the names in question, but that preposition is a little ambiguous. It, it can be translated of David, to David, or for David, so they're not always a, a clear-cut uh, explanation as to the author. You know, another note in regards to them, over two-thirds of the Psalms have titles that generally provide us some helpful information, not only authorship, but the historical origin and, and setting. They'll, they'll give a little bit about uh, literary features and the liturgical use and musical notations. If you wanted to note a couple just at the very beginning of the first book of the Psalms, notice Psalm 3, for instance, a Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. It gives you a little historical context. Matter of fact, as as I was uh, reading Dr. Varner's Awake O Harp th this morning, he was mentioning how that uh, you know Psalms Psalms three and four are good for any of you that have a hard time sleeping. You've heard it said before: if you can't sleep, don't count sheep. Look to the shepherd. Well, here, here's some psalms for you. Psalm 3 was a morning psalm, whereas Psalm 4 was an evening prayer of trust in God. So as, as David was running for his life from his son, he exercised confident trust in God and would, would uh, cry out, answer me, you've relieved me in my distress, be gracious to me, hear my prayer. O oh, sons of men, how long my honor become a reproach? How long will you love what is worthless and aim at deception? Psalm 4, verse 3, But know that the Lord has set apart the godly man for himself. There was his confidence. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble, do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and trust in the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. You've put gladness in my heart more than when your grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, you alone O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. That's why he could rest well on his bed at night as he entrusted himself to his sovereign father who took care of his most intimate needs. So, since the titles of the Psalms are part of Scripture, they're, they're to be read. That's where we start when we, when we read a Psalm. We start with the title if one is given. One more note in regard to the, uh, the uh, superscripts. At the time that they were written, they had some kind of helpful designation for the kind of psalm or content, whether it was uh, the term mizmor or hagion or miktam or telim or maskil. Today, however, the meaning is a little less clear to modern scholars. Uh, you know, we, one, an, another term we come across several times in the psalms is selah. 
which we, we think refers to this is a time to pause and reflect upon what was just read or sung aloud. So, Psalms are generally categorized according to their, their content, their function, or some combination of the two. Some refer to categories like national or historical or, or royal or messianic psalms or imprecatory prayers. Now, if you've got a good study Bible, the kinds of psalms are broken, broken up for you. There's, there's a variance as to how many different kinds of psalms there are because no two scholars agree on how many how many kinds of psalms there are. But uh, the primary kinds are praise, lament, and thanksgiving. A praise psalm is going to draw our attention to God's surpassing character as they extol Him for a particular characteristic or feature. A lament psalm, as the term suggests, also directs our attention to God, but it's seeking His deliverance. Where it's, the psalmist is lamenting his condition, the experience that he's going through. And a thanksgiving describes suffering or pain as a, as a past reality. God's gotten me through this time of turmoil. So, praise contains an appeal to praise God. Uh, whether it's going to be his name that's extolled, his deeds, his attributes, or his character. They're going to focus on his role in history as creator, sustainer, or stabilizer of the universe, that he cares for his subjects. Because that's the only reliable uh, basis for our hope and encouragement, right? The unchanging character of God. And so we go to praise psalms. Yeah, at times we'll linger in the lament psalms where the psalmist gives us the words to express to God for deliverance from terrifying circumstances. No, we might not be running for our lives like, uh, like David was, but you fill in the blank of your own painful experience that you're crying out to God in lament. These arise from personal experience with suffering and injustice facing difficulty while living under the umbrella of God's control. Uh, these, these lament psalms could be personal or, or, or national in the context of a covenant nation. And these thanksgiving psalms is where uh, there is overflowing trust from those that clearly understand suffering and injustice and pain, they describe it as a past reality. The psalmist gives words to what God has done in His grace and kindness. Now, those are the primary types of psalms, but there are also other kinds. Four other categories that are not designated by form or structure. They're, they're classified according to their content. One would be the royal psalm where there is the expectation of the Davidic king. 
The Psalter places great emphasis on God's rule over His creation and His covenant nation in particular. These types of psalms depict the king as God's representative through whom He rules over His chosen people. He's the anointed one. And so, uh, as we're reading through 1 Samuel right now as a church, and, and we've got the first king who was who? Saul. And then uh, he was uh, a less than obedient king and uh, soon to be replaced by, by David. And uh, so, the, the royal psalms place great emphasis on the anointed one. You don't get very far in the book of Psalms before you come to one of these. Psalm 2 is an example of a royal psalm. And you remember as, as he concentrates not only on the Davidic throne, but the coming one, the, the final answer, the perfect king of which all the other kings pointed forward to, the imperfect kings point forward to, we are exhorted by the psalmist to kiss the sun, do homage to the sun, lest he destroy you. Walter Zimmerly, in his Old Testament theology, affirmed the king of Israel makes the dominant, uh, the, the dominion of Yahweh visible on the earth. He epitomizes God's reign as the king goes, so goes the nation. In the ultimate sense, they serve as a witness to the messianic hope which looked for the consummation of God's kingship through His anointed one, unquote. And so, as we're going through our Old Testament read and we're, 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 gonna, uh, we're just getting into these kings of Israel, and one thing that's going to come back as a, a, as a constant reoccurrence is that failure of the kings that God gave His people, and so looking forward to the ultimate king, and uh, so the, the royal psalms kind of uh, bring attention to uh, the expectation of the Davidic king who would fulfill the role that none of these guys did. They draw attention to the anointed king who belongs to the line of David the one that will fulfill 2 Samuel 7. These psalms set a high standard for every Davidic descendant who would become king and then envision an ideal Davidic ruler. No descendant measured up to this divine standard. Thus, this non-fulfillment would create a constant expectation of a future king who would rule over Israel. So, in the Old Testament setting, there would be this ideal Davidic ruler and this New Testament fulfillment that would come into reality, Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed of Yahweh. And so, through the royal Psalms, pay particular attention to the anointed. There's also the enthronement Psalms, another type of, of Psalm, enthro enthronement. They're similar to a royal psalm. They enthrone God. They're best seen as eschatological psalms, looking forward to a time when the Lord would actually come 
to establish His kingdom and reign. It's when the mediatorial kingdom of God will merge into the eternal kingdom of God. One of those would be Psalm 93. And uh, I'm looking forward to preaching on this psalm again. You know, these royal psalms that just put God on display. And as he puts the majesty of the Lord on display, notice, notice how the psalmist goes on. He says, he says, the Lord reigns. Isn't that a great reminder in our devotions in the morning to be reminded that no matter, uh, you know, come, come hell or high water today, God's on his throne. The Lord reigns. He's clothed with majesty. The Lord's clothed and girded Himself with strength. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. Your thrones established from of old, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their pounding waves. More than the sounds of many waters, than the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your testimonies are fully confirmed. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Uh, uh, This is a tone of triumph. This is where the, uh, the timbrel and harp would be crescendoing in their exaltation of God on His throne, His enthronement. Focus on God's kingdom and God's rule. We need perpetual reminders of that. How about the, the wisdom psalms? Wisdom psalms. Wisdom psalms describe the good life. You know, everyone wanting to experience the good life today, well, then open up your Bibles and read and study and do it, and then you will experience the good life. That's what Psalm 1 introduces us to, the blessed one. That's what we're looking at on Sunday nights as we study through the Beatitudes, a life of blessing. God blesses a life that pursues wisdom. Psalm 1 Psalm 37, Psalm 73, Psalm 112, Psalm 119, Psalm 127. They emphasize the theme of two roads. Which road are you on? The way that leads into God's blessing or the one that leads into His curse or His judgment? There's also Messianic Psalms that speak of the anointed ruler from the Davidic line who will rule with justice and compassion. His his rule will be absolute, and it won't be like the rulership that we experience throughout the history of mankind of injustice. It will be a a just rule. He will be a benevolent potentate, compassionate, The Psalter repeatedly refers to this kind of leader, the Messianic leader. Several royal psalms are also Messianic psalms. The New Testament quotes from this group at least 15 times. I'd already referred to Psalm 2 being one. That's that's, uh, referred back to six times. Psalm 18, Psalm 45, Psalm 110 an amazing seven times quoted in the New Testament, Messianic Psalm. Terms 
used to describe the, the intensity of his own suffering provide a pattern that the gospel writers will utilize as they refer back to it. The Psalms are precious poems. They are wisdom for the way. They are praise and adoration for our King that God has enthroned Himself on high. They are songs to encapsulate His greatness. So let's make sure that, that we go to the Psalms and that we be tutored by them, that we be instructed by Psalms. They, they teach us so much. I, I, I gave a list of only just five, five takeaways. As, as we go to the Psalms to, to learn from the psalmist, they teach us to be deeply occupied with our God. In our fallenness, we are so tempted to experience life in a man-centered way. And so, the, the, the Psalms help us get up out of the muck and mire of personal human experience as they enthrone God's greatness and His majesty to center our focus on the one who does indeed reign on His throne. Though He raises up and takes down human leaders, He is the leader of His universe. He is the one that is occupy our minds, our affections, our time. You know, they also teach us to praise our God. They even give us the how too. Few lessons are needed more than how to praise God. They, they turn us into great praise partners. So often we, we, we are tempted to mumble mechanical praise from, from hearts crowded with unworthy loves, where you and I, beloved, are occupied with earthly concerns, not the eternal, not kingdom agenda. There is a need for robust praise from hearts that are deeply schooled in the stunning truths of a sovereign Lord who not only made us, but pours forth His bounty countless blessings, the chief of which is eternal salvation through His beloved One, the Lord Jesus. Yeah, they instruct us in praise. You know, I, I think of what, just my own personal journey through, through the Psalms and as, as uh, we look at the element in our worship service of pastoral prayer, and structuring your thought, because I, I know I, I personally am, am, I am so boring, and, and we, we, are, we are prone towards uh, mediocrity and repetition. I, I go home some days just thinking, what, what attribute of God can I extol in our family prayer at supper time? And the Psalms instruct us on getting out of the repetition and rather than offering or mumbling mechanical praise, constantly growing in our love and adoration and praise of our great God, they instruct us in how to do that. You know, they, they also teach us how to trust our God amidst affliction and how to be comforted. You know, when you're, when you're on the run with David as he's running from Absalom, boy, he, he'll school you in not letting the situation overwhelm you 
that God is still on His throne, and they'll teach us how to trust our God amidst that affliction, how we can experience comfort. John R. W. Stott writes, quote, the reason why Christian people are drawn to the Psalms is that they speak the universal language of the human soul. Whatever our spiritual mood may be, there is sure to be a psalm which reflects it, whether triumph or defeat, excitement or depression, joy or sorrow, praise or penitence, wonder or anger. You'll find a psalm to express yourself to your God, to minister to your life. The Psalter is simply a is universal in its appeal to believing hearts, and it will meet you on the road of wisdom. Yeah, the Psalms will show you and I zeal in the cause of our God. Zeal in the cause of our God. It will also demonstrate how we're to worship our God, both publicly and privately. You know. Uh, for our, it wasn't for our, our calls to worship. I think it was for our scripture readings. We went through the Psalms of Ascent. These were Psalms that would be sung and prayed and offered in worship to the Lord as they were going up the steps to the temple to worship. They were offered to God. And so, uh, on behalf of, of worshipers, and, and uh, psalms are given in response to, the, uh, offered for the nation. And so, we can learn n- not just how to worship God publicly, corporately, as a collective group of saints, but even individually and privately, both in the pilgrimage psalms as well as private worshiper in the midst of heart-wrenching circumstances, pouring his heart out in praise and, and adoration. So much to learn from the Psalms. Maybe, you, maybe you're wanting to gather some friends to enter your, your study corner with you to help instruct you more on the Psalms. I jotted some down on, uh, on one of these slides. If you, you know, don't, don't forget to take your friend Dr. Spurgeon with you. Uh, the, the Treasury of David is, I think, uh, my, my set's three volumes where he gives devotional thoughts on, on the Psalms. Don't forget Spurgeon speaking into your life, or Derek Kidner, Graham Scroggy, or Salehammer. Calvin's got some great words of wisdom on, on the Psalms in his set. James Montgomery Boyce, Stephen Lawson has a, a two-volume set uh, that he wrote uh, from his expositions. I forget how many years Steve said he, he took to uh, preach through all 150 psalms. Helpful resources for reading the psalms devotionally would even be that one I already mentioned, Dr. Varner's Awake, O Harp. Or, you know, though Dietrich Bonhoeffer isn't uh, totally where we would be in, in evangelicalism, he, he wrote... Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, and uh, he could come alongside you. But uh, before I move on, are there any questions that have come up in, in regards or, or testimonies in regards to your interaction with the Psalms? All right. 
Let me, uh, oops, I guess I didn't put these here. Maybe there's a question. How about those imprecatory psalms where, where the psalmist is praying down the wrath of God on the head of his enemies? The imprecatory psalms have, have occasioned considerable debate. How do we understand these statements of hellfire and brimstone? Can similar language be used today against those who oppose believers and the, the spread of the gospel? Imprecatory psalms, imprecation from the Latin verb imprecari. An imprecation is the act of invoking evil, calamity, or divine judgment upon another. Imprecatory psalms, you might be, uh, you might, his, his food for fodder, they're not just in the psalms. They're found in other passages of, of Scripture in Numbers and Judges and Jeremiah. They occur in, par in part of 18 Psalms. So, there's a lot of them. So, let me, let me give you the, uh, the context of how, to, how, to, how I think that maybe we could understand these imprecations. Number one, Israel enjoys an intimate covenant relationship with, uh, with Yahweh. God sovereignly intervened in their lives. He pursued a relationship. Covenant curses and even blessings are an integral part of that covenant relationship. Remember what God said before? Uh, this, this should be pretty recent in your, in your memory as we've been reading through the Old Testament. Before Israel stepped across the water into the land of promise that God had promised them, do you remember what happens on the other side of Jordan that Deuteronomy records for us? Anybody remember? Yeah towards the end of Deuteronomy. So, think of just the word Deuteronomy, Deutero, uh, uh, second uh, nomos, law, second given of the law. This was a reiteration, a reminder that if you obey me, you know, let's talk in the, the words of wisdom since we mentioned wisdom psalms. If you obey me, what God say? Part of the covenant, I, I'm going to bless your socks off or sandals. You disobey me, and it's going to cause covenant cursing into your lives. In the big picture, you can only understand this language if you maintain an awareness of the larger Old Testament theological and covenant context. Think of covenant. Israel enjoyed an intimate covenant relationship with Yahweh. God declared that He would make the descendants of Abraham into a nation, He'd give them a land, and He'd bless them. That's Genesis 12, 1 through 3. He'd be demonstrating His sole responsibility for the prosperity of Abraham and his descendants. It was not dependent on them in many ways. God blessed His covenant subjects with abundance, and later while Israel camped on the plains of Moab, Moses declared God had done exactly what he'd promised, Deuteronomy 10, 21 and 22. 
God did what he said he'd do. And he'll continue to do it. God gave the law in the, in the wake of the ten plagues crossing the Red Sea and repeated miraculous provisions. How did he sustain them in the, on the backside of the desert in the wilderness? Rain down manna. Water from a rock. I mean, this is, this is stellar stuff, folks. These aren't just uh, fables. These are Bible stories, which means they are accounts of history. He formed them into a nation with the Mosaic Covenant as a constitution. If you will do this, then I will do that. He pledged to be their God and demanded them to be His people, requiring them to love Him wholeheartedly. That's Deuteronomy 6. Love Him with your muchness, everything you are, have, and, and are to be. Lead lives of absolute loyalty. And as the one who redeemed them from Egypt and formed them into a nation, he had a right to expect them to live in a way that put his incomparable character on display before other citizens and other nations. That's why they were originally a theocracy before they ever got a king. God was their leader. God was their king, quote-unquote. Not like the nations around them. So Israel enjoyed an intimate covenant relationship with Yahweh. Second of all, covenant blessing and covenant cursing were linked with the way nations treated God's chosen nation. If you want to jot down Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 27 and 8, they delineate the covenant sanctions promised to those who committed covenant treachery. They were given prophetic predictions of coming judgment and, and the language of covenant curse, language of, of the Mosaic covenant is used. Illness, death, drought, famine, defeat by an enemy, eviction from the land, etc., etc. You find that in these imprecatory psalms. So the Psalter, which forms the songbook of a people bound in covenant to their God is the context that you must understand in precatory psalms. You must understand the larger theological backdrop as, as God demanded their exclusive allegiance that He alone is God and He required them treating others with justice and compassion if there is a lack of perfect love if there is a lack of equity if there is a lack of justice if there is a lack of compassion it was high treason. It was abhorrent treachery. This is no minor issue. So as you seek to, to interpret these, these hard words of the Psalms, these praying down of God's judgment, first of all, it is a vindication of God's righteousness that is at stake rather than vengeance for the afflicted psalmist. That's the central issue. It's not, God, they're making my life miserable at the workplace. Would you please do something to make their life miserable too? That's not what was at stake. This language is not about personal payback or getting a pound of flesh. There is no malice whatsoever. They were at least as concerned for God's reputation as they were for their own welfare. They believed God exercises a just and compassionate rule over creation. He must intercede on behalf of the innocent and the oppressed. 
Deuteronomy 10 and verse 18 presents him as one who defends the cause of the fatherless and widow and loves the alien. The enemy wasn't, you know, when the psalmist prays these imprecatory prayers, the enemy's not just wrong against them, but revealed their rebellion towards God. That's the issue. Second of all, God's kingship is prominent. God's kingship is prominent in these psalms. For example, Psalm 5 and verse 2 refers to my king and my God. God is king forever and ever. And since He is the supreme king, any violations of His kingship demands an action against Him. So it's God's kingdom that's at stake. Thirdly, there is a covenant basis for a curse on Israel's enemies. God said, I'll, I'll curse those that curse you. Much covenant language in the Psalms like choose and know, law, statutes, or your people. They even make frequent use of the name Yahweh, highlighting His capacity as covenant maker and covenant keeper the one who is ever faithful to his covenant. They commend or condemn conduct with language reminding them of the Mosaic covenant, covenant blessing or covenant treachery. Fourthly, as you read them, make sure you understand them in the lens of the, the enemies referred to are ultimately God's enemies. They're God's enemies. They rebelled against God. They hurled insults at Him they have no room for God, no fear of God. The language of wrath, in other words, doesn't arise from some personal offense or vendetta. Instead, it deals with the rejection of God's authority. That's what they were interested in. And finally, imprecatory language must be interpreted in light of the message of the entire salt of the entire Old Testament. Imprecatory language isn't an expression of anger and frustration against those who oppose our personal intentions and plans. So you might still ask, are these still in vogue? Can we offer up imprecatory prayers today by believers? As those who have a relationship with God through the new covenant Believers should be just as passionate about demonstrating the surpassing nature of God's character to a world as were the psalmists. We should be just as offended by the acts of treachery against God's sovereignty that the reproaches that fell on Him have fallen on us. To long that God would punish the wicked so as to vindicate His righteousness, that's totally proper that God would be justified before man. J. Carl Laney, in a fresh look at the imprecatory Psalms, writes, they were motivated by a desire to promote righteousness, to demonstrate God's sovereignty, to cause the wicked to seek the Lord, and to provide an opportunity for the righteous to praise God. These were for those who shook their fists in the face of the God of Israel. So, 
Yeah, a very practical response to the person and work of God. So let me encourage you, dig into the Psalms, read the Psalms, meditate on the Psalms, memorize the Psalms, sing the Psalms back to the Lord. Father, we thank you for them. What a treasure trove in the Old Testament. Help us to, to study it, to be doers of the Psalms, all to the praise of our great King, who is enthroned today. We ask it in His name. Amen.